But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is our mid-Australian Open episode. Uh, if you feel like the Australian Open has been going on for two months, that is reasonable. It has. <laughs> uh, we have so much tennis to get to on this episode, but we will begin by putting a little bit of a bow on the whole Djokovic saga. Because the last we spoke to you, a decision was pending. And the decision was deported. We were also waiting to hear if Djokovic was going to do or be granted a one-judge situation, or if it was going to be the three-judge panel. They got the three-judge panel, had a pretty expedited hearing, didn't even last the full day, judgment came in, and it was a unanimous move to deport him. Yeah, since they moved straight to the three-judge bench, uh, it wasn't able to be appealed, and it was pretty much case-closed at that point. I mean, it was a day before the Australian Open was to start, so there wasn't much time to do anything. The draw had long been released at that point, so folks were waiting on the decision, waiting to see the order of play the day before. We were wondering if there was some kind of correlation between the delay in the order of play and the decision. Mm -hmm. Well, the draw was late, first of all, mm -hmm. uh, and then the order of play was very, very late by Grand Slam standards. And then people just kind of moved on pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't much player outcry. Uh, obviously, the news cycle kept going. Once the tennis started, it was mostly confined to uh, like those <laughs> bizarre segments of Twitter and the news, where you know people who had like a very specific axe to grind continued to mm -hmm. talk about it. But the tennis kind of took over. The greatest beneficiary of this was really Ketsmanovic, who was scheduled to play Djokovic in the first round and made it all the way to the fourth. Mm -hmm. Uh, after this decision was made, one Ms. Alizé Cornet, who is still in the tournament, tweeted, I know too little to judge the situation. What I know is that Novak is always the first one to stand for the players, but none of us stood for him. Be strong, Joker Nole. This Co is... Correct. You did this not... Is crazy. <laughs> you did not stand for it. It's such a weird tweet. It's like, we should have really stood up for him in the past tense. But yeah, I didn't. But hey, let me try and score some points here. Like, I just don't understand it. Retweeted, of course, by Djokovic lackey Vashik Pospisil, who previously tweeted, Novak would never have gone to Australia if he had not been given an exemption to enter the country by the government. In parentheses, which he did receive, hence Judge Kelly's initial ruling. Right. Again, not what the original ruling was about. Mm -hmm. But don't let facts get in the way. That was just a procedural thing, Vashik. He goes on to say he would have skipped the Australian Open and been home with his family, and no one would be talking about this mess. There was a political agenda at play here, with the elections coming up, which couldn't be more obvious. This is not his fault. He did not force his way into the country and did not, quote, make his own rules he was ready to stay home. Get you a friend. Uh, I like know. Vashek a Pospisil. friend like Vashek. <laughs> wow. 
We said on this podcast consistently throughout this whole saga that multiple people are to blame for the situation. So to issue a statement saying that Novak is, quote, not to blame is it's wild. Well, because Vashik made a good point that he could have stayed home. Yeah. But he could have. Get yourself a frenemy like Nick Kyrgios. <laughs> okay, this is too much. Nick has gone out of his way many times to say downright nasty things about Novak, unprovoked, like deeply mean things, right, about his personality. Do you uh, do you remember NCR's greatest right? hit? Uh, implying that he's a doper, like all sort of rude things that were really uncalled for. But now we have to feel guilty because Nick is on a high horse about Novak's visa. It's just a, such a bizarre thing. He responded to Alizé Cornet's tweet and with some emoji implying, um, Hello, I have been the only one supporting <laughs> Lord Djokovic. <laughs> I wonder what this all portends for the PTPA going forward. Because what I can say is that it's not a good look at all. Yeah, yeah, it's not. I am struggling to find the interest, to be totally honest, in PTPA. If it's a genuine labor collective of tennis players and it represents tennis players' voices, then maybe it will survive. If it's not, then perhaps the players move on and work on some bottom-up organizing. Are we hypocrites? For supporting this decision to deport Djokovic? We're here to tell you yes. Do we also think the immigration system should be reformed? Also yes. Who's a hypocrite? <laughs> you can speak for yourself. I really do not care what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it was fun to follow, but I'm not really invested. Okay, fine. I'm a hypocrite. If you want to sit there and be all holier than thou, like you didn't partake in the, the revelry... That, that's on you, boo. The thing about this situation is that with so many people to blame, the, the end result is Djokovic shouldering all the negative attention. Yeah, all the bad press, at least outside of Australia. Mm -hmm. And so there is a hypocritical element of that to be celebrating, in a sense, though the decision to remove him because we feel he should never have been there in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. But it's important to also hold the other elements to be blamed to the fire as well. This shouldn't just be like, flognole, it's over, done. Craig Tiley is still out here up until a couple days ago hiding from the public. The refugee detention center situation has not changed. The government has moved on from this issue. And so what will we remember... From this moving forward. What we'll remember is this stupid culture war, right? Like, it's not a conversation about public health or uh, draconian immigration policies. It really is just, like, a silly, uh, cynical discussion about, I don't, I don't want to wear a mask. Vaccine mandates are stupid. You know, this, just the basest of public discourse that we're currently experiencing. The week leading into the Australian Open, we also saw... Four titleists. Thanasi Kokinakis won his first career title at the Adelaide 2 tournament. Madison Keys played phenomenal tennis to win in Adelaide as well. Something that she's been able to parlay into week one 
and week two of the Australian Open. Aslan Karatsev won in Sydney, and Paula Badosa won in Sydney. Yeah, and so far the WTA champs of that week have fared a bit better at the Australian Open. Badosa reaches the fourth round, gets taken out by Madison Keys, who was just playing stunning power tennis, really learning to harness those gifts that she has. And, you know, on the men's side, unfortunately, the Nasi lost in the first round. Aslan had a boatload of points to defend. Semis from last year lost in the third round to Manorino at like two in the morning. Played a five-hour four-set match. Like, yeah. You touched on Karatsev there. Let's get into some of the upsets from the first week. On the women's side, there were some losses that by seed, I guess, were upsets. But as is the case on the WTA these days, anything can really happen. Yeah, I'd say this was a pretty standard first week on the women's side. Maybe even more to form than normal, (laughs) even though there are a few key upsets. You're going to have people lose in the first week. Right. That's just the way it is. Leila Fernandez in the first round, she goes out to Madison Inglis, winning her first Grand Slam main draw match. Home favorite in that match, Madison Inglis. Coco Goff lost to Chang Wong in round one. And she and her partner McNally also lost in round one of doubles to Yastremska and Kostiuk. Yastremska uh, miraculously recovering from that injury that forced her to bow out of her singles match at the 11th hour. A little bit surprising, but again, not. Chung is somebody who's beaten Serena Williams at a Grand Slam, somebody who has the, the shown the pedigree in the past. Mm-hmm. And perhaps we were blinded by thinking that maybe as Coco enters age 18, that <laughs> she was ready to take the next step at the slam. She's been doing very well at slams to this point. Uh, but to lose in the first round here felt like a little bit of an upset. Mm-hmm. Petra Kvitova was out in round one to Kirstea, who's now uh, in the fourth round. Muguruza and Kantavate both lost uh, within like a half hour of each other. These were the two finalists at the WTA Finals in Guadalajara. These were surprising results. But again, it wasn't something that upends the entire tournament. It was surely disappointing to see Muguruza go out to Cornet, Contivate. Uh, I mean, Clara Towson is just leveling up. The power is increasing. I mean, I have been telling y'all to look out for Clara Towson for a while now. So I can't look at that result and say it's a, it's surprising. Mm-hmm. But for the two of them to go out in such quick succession felt like the only time that the draw actually shook at this tournament. Right, right. And Belinda Banchich, as the Australians say. Still. Yeah. Why is that an Australian thing? Anyway, Belinda lost to Anisimova. And again, this was an upset uh, by seed, of course. And Belinda was is the gold medalist at the Olympics, one of the best hardcorters there is. But Amanda is on a hot streak. She comes in here working with Darren Cahill. Uh, the game is is where many of us had hoped it would be, you know, over the past two three years. Mm-hmm. And Benchich again remains out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. On the men's side, it's gone a little bit more to form, I think. Lloyd Harris down here, who is a seed in the 20s, losing to Vukic, Diego Schwartzman, 
Orkoc lost to Manorino, but Manorino then went on to beat Karatsev and play Rafa Nadal in the round of 16. And that first set was a little iffy. Karatsev really had rough go of it <laughs> in that he had come off playing the week before, gets to the Australian Open, plays a long first round match against Jaume Munar, follows that with another long match against Mackie McDonald, and then the longest of them all, I believe, against Manorino in the third round. Mm. So there was nothing left to give for him at that point. Right. Number 12 seed Cam Nori went out to Corda in the first round, which is a match that a lot of people were looking at as an upset alert. I think the only upset part of it was how easy it was mm-hmm. for Corda to win that match. And Rublev loses to Chilich in the third round. And Chilich is now through to the second week of the Australian Open for the eighth time in his career. How the rest of this episode is going to go, because there have been so many stories that have happened in the first week, so many good matches that have happened. We're going to deal with those first, then get into where we are in terms of the draw, and then we're going to end with a few week one etc. Mm-hmm. Notable matches from week one. Well, Sloane Stevens comes down here after getting married, says she wasn't actually sure if she was going to play, draws Emma Raducanu in the first round, and puts up a good fight, but loses in three sets to Raducanu. Raducanu then goes down to Kovinic in the next round. Sloane said in press that she didn't intend to play Australia. We were all kind of caught off guard when she announced a few days after her wedding that, hey, I'm coming, because we just we just assumed that maybe she took the year off to to get married and enjoy that. Mm-hmm. It was kind of at the last minute for her to show up. And then with no match preparation, it was a bit of a big ask for her to make a deep run at this tournament. Right, right. Diana Yastremska, as you mentioned, uh, pulled one of her patented retirements very near the end of a match. She was down love five against Madison Brengel, and it was a bit too much. It was just too much. She could no longer go on. Yastrzemska had 31 winners to 60 unforced errors, and Madison Brangle had one winner in that match. <laughs> over three sets. A match in which she got bageled. Mm-hmm. Over 2.95 sets. Yeah, and I will say, if you retire at love five, you got bageled, girl. Even though you quit, it still counts. Victoria Azarenka steamrolled Elena Svitolino. Oh my lord. Six love, six two. For a little while, it wasn't clear if Alina was going to win a single game. Uh, Vika's return game was on point. She just looked in such incredible form this week until she didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't drop serve once through the first three rounds. Andy Murray played Basilashvili again for the third time, and he's now 3-0, and followed by a straight set loss to Tara Daniel in the second round. Yeah. So Murray is now 3-0 against Basilashvili, and all of their matches have been over the past year. But at what cost? Mm-hmm. He played him in the first round of Wimbledon, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then we got that, they played again the week before the Australian Open. We got a taste of the Nick Kyrgios Circus again at this tournament. Yeah, you know, with diminishing returns each time. He plays Medvedev in the second round, manages to take a set. We'll give him that. I don't know how many people will be able to do that this tournament. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's again, the sideshow circus business. I, I don't really know what more there is to say about Nick. 
what more we have to say about Nick. He, uh, you know, we've heard for many years at this point that he's good for the game. I mean, we've heard both sides, right? That he's awful or that he's good for the game. And I don't really know if either of those sides is 100% true. He generates so much fan interest on site. No doubt about that. He's an electrifying character for better or for worse. He behaves really badly sometimes. Uh, he can be extremely disrespectful to his opponent and the people who work on court. That's for sure. Like, yeah, people like watching him. There's yeah. no doubt about that. I mean, there's also some increasingly unsettling stuff to do with women. Yeah. Yeah, there's some off-court stuff that uh, has seeped into social media that is not flattering. Specifically from his ex-girlfriend, and also there's this business of him, whenever there's a young WTA player who comes on the scene, he is first in their mentions and likes on Instagram. Yeah. There's yeah. A, a lurking aspect to it that's unseemly, specifically because how young these women are. Yes. Well, he keeps getting older. And they keep staying the same age. He's taking the DiCaprio route. <laughs> right. So this match against Medvedev, Daniel was obviously pissed off at the end of the match. And he is someone who thrives under, uh, I think, that negative atmosphere sometimes. We saw it at the US Open, of course, in 2019. And he has a way of winning over crowds normally. It may take a few matches. But he was not pleased by the way the Australian crowd behaved in his match, and I don't blame him. They were not great, and they were egged on by his opponent. And so after, during the on-court interview with Jim Courier, it's so loud, and Daniel says, show some respect to Jim Courier. He's won here. <laughs> you have here noted that it was very much like um, the elementary school principal saying, I'll wait. <laughs> you know, like when you're at an assembly... Mm -hmm. And the principal's up in front of the whole school and nobody's shutting up. And they're just standing there expectantly. Mm -hmm. I'll wait, children. I'll wait until you're quiet. But uh, Daniel said, you know, I know you don't respect me, but at least show some respect for Jim Courier. So he was trying the shaming route this time. He also gave us one of the great lines of the week Medvedev did with respect to the crowd and this soothing that they've been doing. Mm -hmm. uh, saying I don't, I don't know what that is we, we i'll explain it in a little bit but it gave us what a lot of folks rightfully labeled an updated a modern she just doesn't have a formal education mm -hmm. it was a pale echo mm -hmm. in my opinion he said he didn't understand why people would do that i guess it's you know those people just don't have they have a low iq mm -hmm. it was like the eugenicist version of the formal education shade <laughs> Uh, if I can be frank, oh it God. wasn't so much shade because it's not subtle. Mm -hmm. It's it's just like these people are like congenitally stupid. And he's used this before. I don't get what his his thing with IQ is. So maybe this is unpopular, but I actually didn't didn't find that cute at all. Um, oh. Normally, I would find him sort of making fun of the crowd amusing. No, see, I found it exactly spot on because it is exactly what it is. The Sue thing... I'll tell but you what low it is. IQ? I'll tell you. The Sue thing, what it is, it's what Cristiano Ronaldo screams after he scores a goal. And it's S-I-U. And it's translated from Portuguese. It means yes. So they're essentially screaming, yes. But to be doing that just for 
any old reason on a tennis court when it's, I would say it's about 99.2% of them men mm-hmm. bringing this football, soccer, hooligan culture to the tennis. It is brain dead behavior. Who shows up <laughs> to a tennis match and just decides, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to go right. like and a it, million times a match. It rhymes with boo. So yeah. people think they're getting booed. Yeah. And they think it's hilarious. No, it is exactly, precisely a marker of low intelligence. Actual or emotional. One or the other. Oh, okay. Or maybe both. Oh, you saved it there at the end. <laughs> so Curios, for his part, he and his friend Thanasi Kokonakis are in the doubles draw. They've won three matches. They beat the number one seeds, Pavic and Mektic, in round two. And Nick tweeted after the match that apparently their coach and physio, this is the Croatian team's coach and physio, threatened to fight Nick and Danasi in the locker room. Mm-hmm. You can choose whether or not you believe the story. Uh, but apparently there was a row. And this, of course, spurred Nick to say tennis is so soft. Mm-hmm. It's one of his favorite, uh, his go-to phrases that tennis is soft. I mean, I can't really imagine Nick in a fight, personally. You know, he's set, he sets himself up so, so much for someone to say, well, for someone with a doughy physique who refuses to put the work in to be a top flight tennis player, that you then could be deemed soft of will, of body, of mind. Of effort. Yeah. Right. So to fall back on this tired trope of toxic hypermasculinity to big yourself up it's it's beyond the pale it's tired mm-hmm. and and like we're all, everybody's soft you know the whole sport is soft yeah. anybody who's not as as tough and rough and macho as nick is soft fine i i will happily be that Djokovic but... was probably soft until he decided that he needed to be cloaked in the support of nick curious because nobody else was helping him mm-hmm so did you get that attention you ordered? Well, we got mumbles, grumbles this week that perhaps this is his last year on tour. I mean, does he do years on tour? <laughs> he shows up to majors and wins a match or two, and he's a part-time player. Like, At this Which, point, again, I've always said is fine. Like, it's yes, fine if, mm-hmm. if that's what you want to do. I If you parachute in and win a major, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. More power to you. I'm just tired of hearing, like, the voice is so outsized compared to his contribution. We've spent hours on this show over the years talking about some of the ways the discourse surrounding Nick Kyrgios is problematic. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we spent that time doing that because now we have been released from having to do so going (laughs) forward. We feel we can be critical because we've uh, tried really hard to, like, give him... A fair hearing and, yeah. and contextualize the whole situation. So if you want to hear that, yeah. go back to the archives, listen to it. But I'm done. At this point, mm. I am done. But shout out to Danasi, who wore his rainbow wristbands mm-hmm. in honor of Pride Day at the Australian Open. Shout out to Liam Brody, who wore rainbow laces and gave an expansive answer as to why he did so. We'll get to that later mm-hmm. on. Another notable match from week one, Carlos Alcaraz against Matteo Bertini. Looked to be fairly straightforward for Matteo winning the first two sets. And then all hell broke loose for him because Carlos just settled himself and got into that match. Pushing it to a fifth set 
super tiebreak. Yeah, and it seemed like all week people were remarking on Carlos's body, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Because he's wearing this new sleeveless kit. He looks a bit more grown up even from a few months ago at the U.S. Open. And, I mean, the people in the know, like people who know more about tennis than we do, have been talking about Carlos's skill and talent for years, mm-hmm. right? And And every time you see him, it's like, this dude is the real deal, which I believe... But throughout the beginning of that match, like he lost the first two sets and like, okay, I'm, you know, everybody's still raving about his play, but it's not really happening today. Right. But there is a big difference between having talent, being able to deploy that talent and then also be able to beat a top 10 player at a Grand Slam. We know Mm -hmm. it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Not many people have that. Ask Alexander Zverev. Still waiting. Indeed. But what was clear from watching that match, he has a lot of raw talent. At the moment, he's mm. still honing it. There were times when he looked a little bit raggedy, which is to be expected for an 18 year old, right? Mm-hmm. Like not as polished, rushed at times, not necessarily making the best decisions. But when you saw him settle into his game and a rhythm, you were like, well, I can see how this plays out. Right, right. Mateo has been through it this week. Uh, he thanked Amodium mm-hmm. after his first round. Uh, So you can only imagine what was going on in Mateo's world. Or going through him. Indeed. He gets through that match, goes on to beat Pablo Carreño Busta in straight sets. So that at least will give him a bit of respite going forward. Babs, Krejcikova, the career, renaissance, birth, whatever you want to call it. She is so real and so talented. (laughs) This is just not, you know, the past... Eight months are not what I saw coming after that French Open win. She has proven that she is a consistent top player. And I was watching her the other day, and I'm like, why? And then I, you know, I was like, oh, oh, that's why. And that's why. Oh, right. She has, you know, 12 different options uh, on the backhand when she's standing at the baseline. And it, she's just, uh, the hands are unbelievable. She can redirect with pace like basically nobody on tour right now. It makes it look so easy. The power is effortless. The touch, say nothing of her net game. Um, It has clicked for her and do not expect it to unclick anytime soon because... Yes, because she also seems impervious to criticism. She, like the game face is real, right? In her match, I think it was against Ostapenko. This was the site of another legendary bathroom break. The Australian Open... Uh, officials and the umpires have been very clear about spelling out the rules at the beginning of each match and francis even made a joke to the umpire and said oh i wonder why like a couple players did that oh dear (laughs) but babs went to the the facilities it took about eight minutes whatever and she came back and she's like oh i broke my necklace as an explanation for why it took so long she was penalized and then she (laughs) grabs the necklace from her her hutch, her bench where she is, and points it at the umpire saying, <laughs> I, what do you want me to do? I broke my necklace or something like that. <laughs> like, ma'am, pick up the necklace and move on. What did, was were, she going to like a jewelry repair shop while she was back there? <laughs> were there, were they pearls? Did they, did this? <laughs> they exploded everywhere. And she had to like, pick them up one by one. You just yeah. close your fist. Like what, we'll deal with it later. I don't know. Madness. Maybe it was a very special necklace. And she needs to, you know how athletes are superstitious. Yeah. Maybe she needs to have it on, like, while she plays. 
that was not a good excuse, is what I'm saying. It I, was not Tortellini. It was not Pamela. It was not, you know, well, it was inventive. Right, but... But not plausible. Most of the time, Barbara doesn't need an excuse. Like, she does whatever she wants, mm-hmm. and she doesn't really come up with, oh, oh, I was doing this. It's like, no, I went to the bathroom, and I'm going to take three hours to walk to my towel now. <laughs> So, Amanda Anisimova versus Naomi Osaka, the match that denied me my coveted osaka Barty moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not even mad about it because of the quality that we got. Barty had already set up her half of that would-be fourth-round match. Beating Camila Georgie in straight sets. Because the scheduling wizards at the Australian Open, put they put it on at the same time. Yeah. And Barty blazed sense. through her match. Leaving Naomi and Amanda to battle it out for that other fourth round spot. And that match delivered. It did. It it was just such a beautiful example of big babe tennis on the women's game. Like, it was really like the battle of the backhands, right? Amanda's down-the-line backhand is incredible. And it's the type of tennis I like to watch. Mm-hmm. We know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What I love about it is, yeah, there's a lot of errors, right? You look at the stat sheet, both women make a bunch of unforced errors. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Because you're going to do that when you're playing, like, balls out like that. Pardon my French. Oh. Or, can we say that? I, I That was probably really, like, a... If it makes it to the show... That's probably, like, misogynistic. Send all but, the hate mail yeah. to James. <laughs> at Elliot JMR, two L's, two T's. I didn't mean to use that gender language, but in, when you're playing at that level smacking the ball that hard, you're going to make some errors. Mm -hmm. You could tell that Naomi still wasn't quite where she needed to be, Mm -hmm. right? But Mm -hmm. she still played very well, and there was nothing to hang her head about. No, no. Amanda saved two match points in that match, Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a mirror of when Naomi saved match points against Garbine last year. And went on to win the tournament. Except... Well, Amanda's not going to win the tournament, because obviously. Because Ash took care of that mm-hmm. last night. I want to talk here very quickly about this business of the television cameras following players through the tunnel after they've lost matches. Mm. I think for one of the first times at this tournament, we got extended looks at the winners walking through the tunnel after they've won. Which I found interesting. I found that to be a value add. Mm. What I continue to not find a value add is intruding on players in their more vulnerable moments after they've already given us everything on court with their play, with their emotions. We sh- we need to just let them be in that tunnel. Right. Because they also, they're going to go to press and a lot of them are going to be very raw in press as well. So you're, you're going to get to see that if that's what you want. It just feels, yeah, like the second you're able to leave the, the public stage when you feel maybe the mask can slip a little bit, that's when, no, the camera is watching you in the in the tunnel. Naomi left the court and was seen being greeted by her team and looked to be pretty upset in the tunnel. But then she was able to gather herself and went to press and told us, like, listen, I'm actually like, I'm okay. I'm mm. totally fine with how this played out. Madison Keys, we are here for this revival because there's nothing fluky about it. <laughs> No, uh, like the tools have always, always been there with Madison. And she's been at this stage now many times. She's still only 26. 
She turns 27 next month, I think. And the thing that folks have always been hoping for Madison is what we're seeing at this tournament, in that she is not overplaying. There's so much restraint with her power at this tournament. Mm-hmm. You know, with Madison, you expect like the wheels to fall off at certain points of a match and her to start hitting out, hitting for the stands, and sometimes reining it back in. But those kind of mental slips aren't really happening during this tournament. And the match against Bedosa, this is not at all what I expected to happen. I really expected a battle like Bedosa in Krejcikova last week uh, in Sydney, I think. And when she's serving this well, to boot, few players hit with as much topspin on their serves as does Madison. She can give you many different looks. Yeah, there were some points of that Bedosa match where it was like, if I were Bedosa, I might actually prefer a first serve coming at me. <laughs> that Some of those second serves kicked so high. Felix Auger-Eliassim is into the second week of a Grand Slam for the third consecutive tournament. Yes, Felix, uh, he has really figured out how to do this at the slam level. The way that he approached the match against Evans was extremely impressive because Evans is somebody who... If you really get into the match with him, he can totally pick you apart. It can get extremely complicated. And Felix never allowed that to happen. No, I was kind of shook by how easy that was. Yeah. We talked a lot on the preview episode. Or maybe we didn't. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I thought maybe about you it. thought about it. I thought about it a lot about how difficult Nadal's draw was. And to date, he's played very well. The match of note from week one for him was his third-round match against Hachanov. Rafa made the first two sets look fairly routine. Hachanov decided to throw the entirety of the proverbial kitchen sink at him in the third set. So much so that I was convinced if this went five that his arm would fall off. Mm. Hachanov stepped his bussy up in that third set. Oh, are we allowed to say that? And then Nadal quadrupled his bussy output in the fourth set. (laughs) Like, that fourth set from Nadal was outstanding. Mm. Uh, like, on, on his part, there's clearly the effort being put into being more aggressive than normal. The first serve is bigger. The serve is more consistent, like he's hitting more aces. He knows that with the foot problem, that he can't be on court for five hours in these early rounds like or it's just not gonna happen he needs to be as efficient as possible and there's still more room for aggression for him because he's still not hitting out as much as he could in these matches and watching his matches it's stretches of brilliance of vintage rafa and then there are some stretches of kind of puzzling decisions or you know balls that are just not getting over the net so it's streaky which a 35 year old player is streaky like it more than that i think there's a a lack of preparation due to months off of injuries due to covid when you see rafa hitting short balls like that and taking a longer time to get his rhythm together that's what that is Mm. like he we know he's a player that takes a lot of matches to get into real peak rafa feelings on court (laughs) right and so what you're seeing is stretches where it looks amazing and stretches where it's a little bit ragged Mm. The match against Manorino last night that featured the longest tiebreak of Rafa's entire career. Over 28 minutes. Yeah, and it was 
and uh, ended up as 1614. Manorino is showing you the genius of the short backswing. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> you know, some of these cross-court forehands and backhands he would pull out of his hat just crept up out of nowhere. It was not a pleasant experience for me. You, I'm sure you did you not know, enjoy that tiebreak. I'm sure less partisan fans found it very exciting. But for me, it was like, okay, is Rafa going to win more than one point in a row? Uh, we, we just need, at many stages, we just needed two points in a row. And mm-hmm. it uh, <laughs> it was a lot to do with Manorino's pristine play. But, you know, there were a lot of strange decisions from Rafa. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was nerve-wracking and a mess in spots. But we got a lot of points that we never really see in tennis. Yeah. All in one 28-minute tiebreak. It was a unique experience. The last match that we'll talk about as a notable match of week one was a delicious one. It was... Oh, from last night? From last night. Mm-hmm. When Denis Shaparovarov beat that guy in straight sets. Yeah, where so about despite, Where despite Dennis giving him multiple looks at staying in the match, he refused to take any of them. He said, thank you for those double faults, Dennis. Here are some for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and he extends his streak of never beating a top 10 player at a Grand Slam to 26 main draw Grand Slam appearances. Thank you, Jonathan. To be fair, he wasn't playing a top 10 player this week. He didn't make it far enough to face a top 10 player. Well, that is the, that is part of the, yes. the point, is it not? <laughs> and so someone who positioned himself explicitly as part of this would-be new big three, whereby the top three players in the world are Daniil Medvedev himself and Novak Djokovic, this guy bowed out in spectacular fashion yeah it was enjoyable i personally was a little bit worried because i did not want his first top 10 win to be nadal in the quarterfinals (laughs) (laughs) even though i said on the last episode that after rafa practiced with him before the tournament that it would have been something he deserved i didn't want to have to make my way across that bridge yeah yeah so thank you dennis for <laughs> allowing me to not have to deal with that. Where are we now in the draws? All right. Uh, so on both draws, at the time of recording, we have the top halves already into their quarterfinals, and the bottom halves are playing their rounds of 16 today mm-hmm. and tonight in the Eastern, yeah, it's Eastern now, Standard Time. It's now 6.06 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so tennis is about to kick off in another hour or so. But for now, on the women's top half, the quarterfinal matchups are Ash Barty against Jessica Pagula and Barbora Krejcikova against Madison Keys. Then at the bottom half, tonight we have Danielle Collins playing Elisa Mertens. Um, let's talk about what Danielle Collins did against Clara Towson. Mm-hmm. I was waiting for the commands for a while. Yeah. Right? Uh, Danielle lost the first set, right, to Towson? And I yes. was waiting for, like, the electricity. And it came. This was a match that we should have talked about in the previous right. segment. There were so many. Clara, I mean, she showed us that she is absolutely one that is coming. Mm-hmm. 
Elisa Mertens, Danielle's opponent in the round of 16. Can we also talk about the fact that this is her 16th consecutive third round at a Grand Slam? I know that a lot of folks like to mock Mertens because she's unable to win the really big titles, right? And call her a vulture, that she just shows up to these smaller tournaments and makes these deep runs and only wins smaller tournaments, but when it comes to the big stages, she can't put it together. But listen, her bank account thanks her. Right. For one, like for a streak like this, would she like to be reaching slam finals consistently? I'm sure, but uh, 16 straight rounds of 32, nobody is doing this. Nobody, literally, and nobody on the women's side is even coming close. No, and what if she goes on to make the semis or the final or win this tournament? Then folks are going to be like, "Wow, WTA is trash." How could they let that happen? Mm. Like, she's literally in a no-win situation yeah. here. She's just here showing up, minding her own business, doing what needs to be done up to a certain point. And that's fine. Not everybody can be a world beater week in, week week out. In fact, nobody is a world beater week in, week right. out. Uh, she is a former semifinalist here, by mm-hmm. the way. So this wouldn't be a first-time kind of thing. Simona Halep quietly going through the draw. She's in the round of 16 against Alizé Cornet who has said that this might be her last year on tour. Iga Sviantek has looked good. She plays Serana Kirstea. And Arena Sabalenka plays Kaya Kanepi in the fourth round. Kaya Kanepi, here again. Giant uh, I, slayer. Where does she go in between the slams? <laughs> she gets injured. Does she hibernate? There's a lot of injuries that okay. happen with Kaya Kanepi. She is, I believe, 35 or 36 years old now. This is her brand, right? She beat Angelique Kerber in the first round. Give her a seed and she will beat them. Sabalenka has taken up a lot of the discourse in week one based on her serving yips. The double faults are aplenty. She's been losing first sets all over the place, looking lost at sea, only to then be able to right the ship. I see the the nautical metaphor there that I used. Oh, I see. Out at sea, writing the Mm -hmm. ship. And figuring it out. This is not an easy thing that she's doing. It speaks to two things. Her determination and also her talent, frankly, Mm. to be able to spot players all these points and still get through it. Right. On the men's side... We have Morfiz versus Berrettini in the quarters. Shapovalov versus Nadal. Mm Mm-hmm. Gael Mofis has won all four of his matches in straight sets. This is not something that happens in Gael Mofis's career. <laughs> <laughs> to go 12 for 12 in sets to make a quarterfinal. This is his 10th career Grand Slam quarterfinal. And I think he has a more than fighting chance against Berrettini in that quarterfinal. And if you listen to him after his match against Ketsmanovic in the fourth round, he is meaning business at this tournament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He told us explicitly, I will be ready for whoever it is in the next round. Oh, oh. Nadal, his draw opened up a bit, obviously, because Orkac went out before Rafa had to face him. He didn't have to play Karatsev. And now he won't have to play Zverev in the quarters. Nor and will he have to play Djokovic in the semis. Right. And still, this is a tough... Mm-hmm. There, there are no easy outs, right? This is not Nadal's tournament to lose. Uh, Getting past Dennis will be, if he does it, a big achievement. Yeah. 
we have to keep in mind where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. It's tempting to watch Nadal play tennis at this tournament and expect it to be business as usual. This is all kind of bonus for Rafa at this point. You know, when sports networks who aren't really deeply involved in tennis see Djokovic is out, oh, well, wow, Rafa could win his second Australian Open. There are a lot of players who stand in the way, mm-hmm. you know, including the best, second best hardcore player at the moment, Daniel Medvedev. Mm-hmm. If Rafa gets that far. Yeah, for me, Medvedev is still the big, big favorite to win this yeah. tournament. Yeah. But is it more possible now than it was at the start of the tournament? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. These it, draws are, are made to be broken. And the bottom half of the men's draw, Diminar plays Yannick Sinner. Sinner being somebody going stealthily under the radar. I haven't heard a peep about him. Taylor Fritz plays Stefanos Tsitsipas. Yeah, this is Taylor Fritz's first, second week at a slam. Mm-hmm. He beat his friend, Francis Tiafo. Uh It was a tough watch for us, but, you know, a great week for Taylor. Felix Ogeliasin, we mentioned earlier, he plays Marin Cilic. And Daniil Medvedev plays, I almost said Carson Kressley, Maxime <laughs> Cressy. <laughs> wow. Totally different looks. Mm-hmm. Um, Cressy uh, is, is really on the come up here. Yeah, he is a giant killer. Literally and figuratively. So now, we move on to week one, etc. We talked about the Sue thing that was supposed to kick off this segment, Mm. but we got to it already. Can we stop for a moment to talk about these new statistics that nobody seems to understand, nor is anybody able to really explain to us on air? Mm -hmm. The presenters themselves don't even know what they are. Kilojoules? Pressure points? Loads? (laughs) Uh, no that's the thing is that they put infosys they put these stats on the screen all the time and sometimes superimposed onto the court itself or above the court and the commentators aren't really helping us understand what these things mean they're just kind of there and it's like bam science and you don't even know whether a higher number is better than a lower number Uh, do we want lower kilojoules or higher kilojoules? I have no idea. And pressure point, like how do they define pressure points? Because you'll often see someone who's winning the match be winning fewer supposed pressure points. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. And who, de- well, who decides what is a pressure point? It might not be a pressure point to the player. It's, it's info, sis. <laughs> That's who decides. Victoria Azarenka. Showed up in press after her third round match with son Leo. She showed up with a whole child in tow. Do you remember a couple years ago when Ash Barty showed up after her loss with her (laughs) nephew or niece or something like that? (laughs) That's with the baby. And folks were like, oh my stars, this is inappropriate. Mental fragility that she needs a baby as a human shield. Inappropriate. This is a workplace. To be fair. Well, I don't know why I'm, I want to be fair. Yeah, I don't even know if we need to make that caveat. Right. I think I know what Ash we're going to do. lost, mm-hmm. and Vika brought Leo after a win. Okay. Still don't care. No. It's not. It's kind of a distinction without a difference. A reporter asked Leo specifically, how do you think mommy played today? And without skipping a beat, he said, awesome. <laughs> and Vika thanked him and thanked the reporter for addressing Sir Leo directly. What a, what an adorable child. 
And the press conference was going on maybe a little too long for him. And he started like blowing into the mic. That took me out. Craig Tiley reemerged, I think for the first time, at the end of Sam Stozer's final Grand Slam singles match. So first we'll say congrats to Bam Bam Sam, Mm -hmm. to Sam Stozer on an excellent career one that started more as a double specialist before she transitioned into being a top-flight singles player. Not unlike what Barbara Krejcikova is doing now. <laughs> uh-huh. And she will continue to play doubles through the rest of the year. She is uh, your reigning U.S. Open women's doubles champion. Her and her partner bowed out in women's doubles already, but she's still around in mixed doubles. So we've been big fans of Sam for a long time. I actually got her autograph years ago before we did this podcast and we weren't really allowed to get autographs anymore because we were trying to be legitimate. So back when we were still allowed to be like fanboys. At least legitimate adjacent. (laughs) Right. One of the best practice sessions I ever watched was hers at the Rogers Cup one year. Mm. I just stood there for about half an hour just watching her go through the paces. And it wasn't even the most revolutionary thing that I'd seen. It was just such a genteel, professional, respectful environment (laughs) to be a part of. Yeah, that's what you get with Sam. Yeah. So she plays her final match and they have some on-court celebrations. There's a little video that's played for her. And you can just see that Sam is not really enjoying the spotlight, (laughs) right? She's like, get me out of here. And then out comes Craig Tiley. Here he comes. Yeah, there was a pretty big elephant in the room, eh? But he gave his little speech for Sam and everything. But uh, he has been notably absent, at least from what we've seen. You know, maybe if you're on site, he's around a little bit more. But uh, there's been several softball interviews. And when he's faced with a question about certain specific things about the Djokovic saga, it's always, well, we've we've already addressed this thoroughly. Mm -hmm. It's like, dude, that is a lie no you have not no but this is i guess this is like classic pr deflection yeah right clearly it was decided that they were going to roll him out this day right Mm -hmm. showed up to the sam fet then there's a softball interview where he dodges questions left right and center about djokovic and then there is a release a statement on behalf of the board of directors for Tennis Australia, essentially saying, A, not much, B, everything's fine, and C, even if we were to make any changes, we only do that at the end of the tournament, Mm -hmm. every year. So, y'all need to just let this be. Well, I mean, clearly, they're not going to fire the guy in the middle of the tournament. You know, that's not going to happen. I, at this point, I would be very, very surprised if Craig did not keep his job. Oh, yeah. You know, like, I fully expect to see him for many years to come. But this has truly been a disaster uh, on the PR level. Uh, There's been various tabloid reports about Djokovic supposedly getting ready to sue the country of Australia. Okay, this is from The Sun in the UK. Uh, There's been rumors that Tennis Australia is paying his legal fees and then Craig Tiley did address some of these and said that, you know, that's not true, but Novak will be back next year. Mm-hmm. He was asked okay. point blank. How, do you, will you how be, do you know? He was asked point blank, will you be resigning? And with no hesitation, no. 
Right. It's like, well, if you want me gone, you're going to have to force me out. Another debacle for Tennis Australia. The hits keep coming. Well, there's two more. The first is the testing, which is a mess. That's what it sounds like. I mean, that's what players are saying. We've had a few positive tests. I guess if you're not testing, you know, if you're not testing that often, you're not going to get many positive tests. Mm -hmm. Remember, we talked about how Bernard Tomic hinted about how messed up the situation was while he was playing qualifying. Mm -hmm. And he said, I took a rapid test. I was negative, but I guarantee you that I'm positive in three days. If I don't test positive, I'll buy you dinner. And within three days, he tested positive. Whether or not the umpire accepted that bet, we are not sure. Mm-hmm. Umber lost in the first round to Richard Gasquet, and then bef- on his last test before he was going to be leaving, tested positive. So he was stuck in Australia for another week or so. Mm-hmm. And the same has happened to Alison van Oudvank. Our reading of the situation is that the testing that's in place and the protocols are designed to yield the least number of positive tests as possible. Because the players aren't being given mandatory PCR tests. They are they have tests available to them should they want them. Like, come on. <laughs> We've certainly come a long way from like the US Open bubble. Right? Craig Talley's like, oh no, like if any player wants a test, they can pick them up at any of these locations and do them. We're told that Garbine Muguruza was one of those who was very on top of that. Mm. She's like, I'm testing every day. I don't care. <laughs> but the, the, the thing with so much mess going around this tournament in the lead up and still, along with this overall desire for all of us to just be able to take in the tennis and enjoy it, a lot of stories have just kind of fallen through the cracks, right? Mm-hmm. I get the impression that folks don't really have the appetite or the bandwidth for this testing thing right now. No, especially at this stage of the pandemic where we're seeing these same fights happen in a lot of different sports and a lot of arenas where people are just exhausted about arguing about testing masks and vaccines and the folks who are going to continue to be cautious will and those who won't won't. The other big mess that Tennis Australia found itself in, in in week one was a fan wearing a Where is Peng Shui t-shirt And then tournament officials coming up to her and telling her that she needed to remove it. Yeah, and then the police were involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was not great. Because the the tournament officials said, we don't allow anything with political slogans, so you have to get rid of the shirt. (laughs) And they're like, well, how is this political? This is a human rights thing. And well, yeah, okay. I mean, clearly, they don't want the attention. And uh, they also have prominent Chinese sponsors, Mm -hmm. like who named one of the courts. Uh, So it's just not really a great look. What is it? The 1573 stuff? It's a Chinese liquor brand. Yeah. So you can see how Tennis Australia is acting to protect its own economic interest here. Yeah, because political statements are fine as long as it's strictly mandated by the tournament itself, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) There is a pride day. And many of us still feel that pride is political. I don't know if they do. Uh, But you're allowed to make political statements in the service of a tournament-mandated celebration, Mm -hmm. right? But not otherwise. Meanwhile, this is a story that has quieted over the last few weeks. Yeah. The Djokovic story took a lot of steam out of that. It wasn't until this story broke that the name Peng Shui started started to be on... 
people's tongues again. Mm-hmm. Speaking of political statements, Liam Brody. <laughs> yeah, Liam wore those rainbow laces to go along with his uh, very colorful kit, which I loved, which I'm trying to track down. I can't find the shorts. Oh, They have the, the shirt online if you want it. He was asked about Stim Press and he said, and I think it's one of the first players to acknowledge this, that yeah, a lot of my specific personal fans are a part of this community, so it's the least I could do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think he said those guys have been supporting me for a long time, and he felt like he wanted to give something back. Yeah, and this was long before Pride Day, which is supposed to be happening today, I mm. think, in Melbourne Park. I uh, I appreciated it. Good on him. Ash Barty, <laughs> she's still in the tournament, for one. Um, but part of the reason she's still in the tournament is how amazing she's been serving and to that end it wasn't until the second game of the second set last night against anisimova that somebody broke her serve this tournament and going further back she had held serve 63 consecutive times i've seen other people say 62 it's 62 or 63 either way it's a lot yes and this is from someone who's five foot five who is clearly built to serve that can get around the height problem uh, because she doesn't always hit a huge number of aces, right? She's not really blowing you off the court with the serve, but the variety and placement on her serve is just really something special. I hesitate to say she's the favorite to win this tournament, but she is looking very good. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's not a case where she gets to the semifinals like she did a couple years ago and then has her worst match of the tournament. <laughs> right. We mentioned earlier on the episode that Naomi took that loss in stride. She told us at this tournament that she'd been working on a few things, that her she's completely changed her mindset and what she wants from tennis this year. She was doing this Q&A thing on her Instagram, and somebody said to her that she should enter every match in this tournament like you have something to prove. And Naomi responded by saying, Respectfully, I don't have anything to prove. Before my first slam, I was told I had potential, but probably not going to capitalize on it. After my first slam, I was told I got lucky and I was a one-hit wonder. After my second slam, I was told that I could be great, but unsure. After my third and fourth slams, I was told I will only be good on hard courts. Moral of the story, people are always going to have something to say, and I don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> Smiley face. <laughs> well, all right. You know, it was clear that she came into this Australian swing in a different mindset. She seemed happy to be back on court. She wasn't suffering this loss like it was devastating. And she didn't really seem apprehensive to go back into press, mm-hmm. right? No, but she's right. It's like what mm-hmm. we talked about with Elisa Mertens, right? On a much smaller scale. No matter what she does, somebody's going to have something negative to say. That's not about celebrating the achievement. Because on the face of it, how is being a four-time slam champion at 23, 24 years old a bad thing? People will find the reasons for it to be a bad thing. Well, you should have won this match and this Mm -hmm. match. But you're not like that person. Well, you're not not Serena. You're Mm -hmm. not the next Serena. And you'll never be Serena. (laughs) And these are the reasons why you'll never be Serena. So don't you get too high on your horse. Don't feel too good about yourself. Mm. Collect those coins. 
And then there are other people who be like, well, why is she making so much money? Serena didn't make so much money. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like there's always going to be something. So if you are that player, this is a completely healthy perspective to have, right? Well, yeah, like clearly you have to figure out a way to manage it for yourself. Mm-hmm. That that type of toxicity coming at you all the time. And that's not even getting into the hate speech that you get directed at you the stuff from betters all that this Mm -hmm. is from just regular old fans you know if you're in any kind of social media you know that maybe 30 percent of all social media posts is i don't care what anybody says i'm just gonna do me fuck the haters like that is the the general social media trope right right so if that is applicable to you in your own life why not to a professional athlete yeah. to protect their own sanity and mental health. And clearly for her, it's taken genuine work to get to that point of brushing off the hateration. It's not just like the knee jerk. Well, I, I have haters, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. And the holleration. <laughs> we will end this episode with a little bit on that guy again. Yes, he lost and that was delicious, but also... Something else that was delicious happened at the start of the tournament. Netflix announced that they were following a bunch of professional tennis players for a new documentary series, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to feature a number of different players. And of course, the players were, there was, they were a buzz at the beginning of the tournament talking about it. And some of them had already begun shooting, so they knew about it. Mm -hmm. Zareb was asked, you haven't done any filming personally with Netflix and he said, I've been doing filming for myself personally, but not with Netflix. No, I think nobody has yet because nobody knew about it. The moderator cuts in and says, they have. Sverev <laughs> says, they have? Who? With what? <laughs> moderator says, I will tell you later. Moderator was like, Lord, your ass is exposed right now. You're looking a whole ass fool. Like, let's, so... let's take this offline. I will circle back with you later. <laughs> Clearly, Netflix has not knocked on your door. Mm-hmm. I will let you know what Stefano Tsitsipas has said. Oh, my That Lord. he was one of the first. And then, can you imagine when he found out that Stefanos was being filmed and he wasn't? Mm. Stefanos mm. is not part of the new big three, you no. know? And then when you found out that Bertini and Felix had already posted a picture. Oh, besties. Besties status. And Taylor Fritz is being filmed. Imagine. And, and Alexander is not. Imagine. You know it. Oh, oh, girl, it burns. You know it burns. Mm. Netflix said, you will never be glamour. The humiliation of that must have been immense. Netflix, uh, you know, heard some whispers and they were like, you know, that's, I'm good. Thanks, love. We'll move on. (laughs) This is all like fun and games. But to get more serious, we still have not heard anything about this alleged, supposed investigation that the ATP is doing into Zverev and the accusations made against him. Yeah, originally when they announced it, uh, shortly after the US Open, right? They announced a, a working group, the fact that they were instituting a policy and that they were starting an investigation into these allegations. And part of the press releases was an insistence that we are moving quickly, mm-hmm. right? that the investigation had actually already begun and that we're moving quite quickly on this policy thing. The investigation, 
I don't know if anybody knows what's going on with it, but no. we haven't heard anything. I think it was sometime around the end of the year, Ben Rothenberg told everyone that he had been in contact with Olya Sharapova, and she said she had still not been contacted by the ATP right. as part of this investigation. So I don't know if that's happened since, if that moved the needle for them in that regard at all, but it's been radio silence. Mm-hmm. And as it was in the beginning, most of us expected that the ATP was just hoping this would blow over and we'd forget about it. And when it didn't, they said, okay, we'll do an investigation. Well, now we're in the stage of uh, hoping we'll forget about it again. Yeah. We still don't know who's doing the investigation. We know, we know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. But we know that Zverev has benefited from all these other stories that have blown up in tennis to have him just kind of go under the radar mm. for possibly the ATP to think that, oh, well, there's a Peng Shui thing, there's a Djokovic thing. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> right. we can just hopefully, especially now that he won't be winning this tournament, maybe by the spring, everybody will have forgotten about it. Mm. That brings us to the end of this episode. Again, if you've enjoyed our podcast, if you've enjoyed our efforts in January, this is episode four of January. We will probably have five in January. Um, oh, yeah, that's true. Okay. If you've enjoyed our quote-unquote work and... Quote-unquote work? Have the it me- is work. <laughs> I just don't want to sound too pretentious about it. Oh, okay. And have the means, if you've been meaning to but just haven't yet, the, our GoFundMe will be up until probably a couple days after the release of our last episode. So there's about like a week and a half more left of the campaign. Thanks to everybody who's donated so far. We have a bunch of stuff that's been sent out into the mail. Into the mail. Sounded like into the woods. (laughs) (laughs) We did learn that sometimes it's quicker for something to arrive in Ireland than it is in... like Down the road. Yeah, in Canada. In Toronto. (laughs) Canada Post, girl. Get it together. (laughs) My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We're at the Body Serve on Twitter and Instagram. For all things Body Serve, go to linktree.com slash the Body Serve and you can find every link imaginable. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank, Thank you. Mikey. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>